Our title of our sermon today is called, Who Are You to Judge? And the sermon today comes from Romans 14, which if you have various translations of the Bible, there might be a heading at the start of Romans 14 that says something about not judging others, or the weak and the strong, or something to that effect. And so, precisely one of the things that we actually struggle with in, in and amongst church family and when people visit churches, judging is actually one of the things that comes up for people. It's actually one of the things that people fear most about churches and church crowds, that they might feel judged, they might feel awkward, that they might feel like people are looking at them and expecting from them, and they don't necessarily like those things. One person on the internet posted this question, why do I feel awkward at church like I'm being judged by people there? Another person answered, you are being judged. That's why I don't go. Another person said, Christians are some of the most judgmental, gossiping, hypocritical, and backstabbing people out there. So some people have truly had terrible experience going into churches and feeling judged. Actually, though, the truth is, I think this is just a widely human issue. I think judgmentalism happens all over the place. I mean, why on earth would we have so many of these shows that we just saw? The, the Got Talents, the, the singing ones, where they, they judge the people. The producers of these shows see the act beforehand. They audition these people, and they parade them on stage knowing they're going to fail. Why? So that people have the opportunity to judge them and to see them um, slammed, to see them go down, right? Everybody laughs, and it's a good old time. People love it. But, and another thing too, a friend of mine used to say this. He used to say, if you want to make friends with somebody, if you really want to like, quickly bond with somebody, rather than going to all the work of trying to find out what you have in common, find something you both can't stand and complain about it together. <laughs> You'll make a quick bond faster than any other way. I'm not sure that that's the healthiest way to make friendships, though, or the healthiest way to have an attitude. So this isn't just a Christian thing per se. It's more of a human thing. But it shows up in us, shows up in churches, and we should talk about it today because Scripture talks about it. And people hate it, especially when they experience it from Christians, because Christians are supposed to be better than that. So I think we can say today, we should do better. And actually, Jesus and the Word of God instructs us to do better. That's the good news. So we're in Romans. We've gotten to chapter 14, addressing this topic. So we'll start reading. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to that chapter, and we'll read the first four verses together. Let me read it to you. You can follow along. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak only eats vegetables. And I don't think this is a commentary on today's vegetarians, just so you know. I'm not going to go on a rampage about vegetarianism. Don't worry. I'll get to that in a minute. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. The one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So in that last 
couple sentences, they're comparing our, our people to be the servant of God. God is their master, not us. Who are we to judge them? Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the, the vegetables. <laughs> and this is a funny topic for us as a church staff because we have people who definitely do the vegetarian thing, and that's totally fine. So what are they talking about? If they're not talking about vegetarianism and as we know it, what is going on in this part? This is where Bible study comes in. To do proper Bible study, you have to ask two important questions. Who was the original author? And who was the original audience? And what was the original author saying to the original audience? We have to find out what's going on at the time. So we have to transport back to like 2,000 years to know what was going on in the day, because that's when these texts were written. That's when the events took place. So we don't want to take the Bible out of context and make it about us when it's not about us. We want to apply it properly. And I'm going to give you guys a rundown of a few different things here. I, I always love to do this because, for me, it wasn't until I went to Bible college, actually, that I started seeing the Bible as this wonderful, continuous piece that all made sense together. Up until that point, yeah, I had learned lots of stories from the Bible, and I had lots of lessons from the Bible. But once I saw how the theology of the Old Testament and the theology of the New Testament came together for this wonderful big picture, it kind of blew my mind. So I'll give you a little bit of this. So the first thing you do is you find the answer to the questions right in the first chapter of Romans, right? So right, at the, right off the top, he tells you who he is. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. To call all the Gentiles. Gentiles is one of those bible -y words, but it means anybody who has become a believer in Jesus Christ who is not part of the Jewish faith that was before Jesus came as the Messiah, right? So the, they're Jews and the Gentiles. The Bible talks about the Jews and the Gentiles. We would be considered Gentiles, most probably, <laughs> to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So the, the letter is to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Rome, Romans, yeah, church in Rome. Easy. The hot topic at the time was this, Old Covenant versus New Covenant. So you can, you can say, you can actually kind of switch out the titles of the Bible halves. So like Old Testament, you could actually call it Old Covenant. New Testament, you could actually call it New Covenant. They're kind of interchangeable. So the, the, the nutshell story of the Old Testament, or the nutshell flow of the Old Testament, is you have the first five books of the Old Testament are called the books of the law, right? Starting from Genesis through to Deuteronomy. Then you have a big chunk of books that tell a story of the people of Israel, right? God leading them. Uh, the big, the monumental story of that time was God leading his people out of Egypt, saving them from slavery, saving them. That was the salvation story of the Old Testament. And then you have a big chunk of books at the end of the Old Testament that's written by a bunch of people's names. Those are called the prophets. They actually intersperse amongst the time of the, the, uh, the, is, the Israel story, but they're just lumped together at the end. If you didn't know that, you would just read it in continuous and go, oh, it's, this all happened, then this all happened, but it, the way the Bible is lumped together is just in sections, and those sections can kind of stack on top of each other. The nutshell story of the New Testament, then, is that the first four books, the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell that story of Jesus Christ. The Gospels, we call them, and then it goes into Acts, which tells the story of the early church. 
and then it goes into the epistles, which are letters written to churches, just like Romans, just like we're studying now. So when you start to see how the picture comes together, the hinge point is Jesus. So if I ask you the question, if, if anybody didn't grow up in Sunday school, if I ask you what's the point of the Bible, the Sunday school answer is Jesus. You can always give that answer in Sunday school and it will 99% of the time be right. Or you can convince them that it's right. Because Jesus is always the answer. So um, when they're talking about now vegetables and meat and eating everything or not eating everything, you could sum it up in uh, uh, Old Testament, Old Covenant law like this. Of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat an animal that has divided hoof, that chews the cud. Very specific, very odd kind of rule, but there's a ton of these in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. And when Jesus came, he freed us and he fulfilled the Old Covenant and he instituted a new covenant, the Messianic Covenant, a covenant that we follow today. And so the church in Rome had just gone through this, just transitioned to this, so there were people who still thought they had to follow all those old rules, and people who were like, no, no, freedom from that. We don't have to follow all that stuff. That stuff was only leading us to death. It wasn't leading us to life, right? So now it's following Jesus, and I'm going to go into that now. So this is, this is where stuff gets exciting. So the Bible framed as one cohesive story. I'm going to give you a New Testament text that talks from the Old Testament that brings the covenant together. So, Hebrews 8, which includes an Old Testament portion, you'll see here. But in fact, the ministry of Jesus has received, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Jesus' covenant superior to the old one. Since this new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong, that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, and this is quoting from Jeremiah already. This is a coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, their salvation story from the Old Testament, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. That is a big promise. Just the forgiveness of sins offered freely by Jesus. And then the, the writer of Hebrews wraps it up and says, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. What is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So this is what's happened. But some people are still clinging to the old. They're still living out the eating of, of or the abstaining from different foods. So when Jesus instituted the, the new covenant, that's when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn, the wall was removed between us and God. We can freely approach him through prayer. We, he also brought us the Holy Spirit to live and reside within us. God in us. God with us. That is the big change. 
And today we're celebrating communion at the end of our, our time in the message here. And this cup, the cup we'll celebrate later, is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said, which is poured out for you. So what a great promise we get to participate in shortly. So, just stay there for a second. Go back to this Romans 14. So what are we talking about here again? Weak versus strong, meat versus vegetarian. It also gets into um, a little bit more things like the Sabbath, etc. What are we all talking about? It's about people who believe and are their conscience and their conviction tells them, I must do this. I must do this for Jesus. I, I believe I have to. And he's saying, verse 1, accept them. Accept them. Don't put them down. Don't judge them. Don't condemn them. They're doing their best to follow Jesus with the information and the conviction they have at the time. These are, as it says, disputable matters. It's the type of food you're eating, right? We'll get into a little bit later about what non-disputable matters we hold to. But this is a big thing because people walk into churches and they feel judged about little things that are about them. They feel judged about their appearance. They feel judged about small choices they make, things they do in their life. And this is a problem and it keeps people from coming to church. Jesus' way is the way of love, a way of invitation, a way of grace, a place of freedom, a place to find rest, a place to be comforted, to be drawn near to God. And that's what we want to participate in. We want to be that place of love, that place of welcome for people to encounter the living God here at this church and here in our personal lives with, with one another too. Keep going in this story. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should fully be convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. That's important. So there's more things there, but just keep that in mind. Does so to the Lord. We'll highlight that. And we'll cap it off with this Old Testament passage again. This was already in place in the Old Testament. It's not like God didn't look at people's hearts in the Old Testament, too. This has, been, this has been the way God has seen us all along, that people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord ultimately is looking at the heart. He's seeing what's going on inside you. Are you doing this for him, or are you doing this for yourself? That is the question. We want to be a part of Jesus' loving and gracious approach to people, invitational approach. Not only is Jesus our Savior, and gracious to us and loving to us, but it's important to remember that Jesus is our Lord. That's where those phrases come, come back in. So we have to ask ourselves this question. Jesus is our Lord, and are we living for him? Are the things we do that we're convicted about, that we're passionate about, are we doing them unto the Lord, right? So you saw in this last passage, they do it to the Lord. That's the important part. They do it to the Lord, Whoever abstains does it to the Lord. They're doing this to honor God the best way they could possibly know. Let's keep going in seven. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. None of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Everything about our life is for the Lord. For this very reason, last verse here, for this very reason Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Okay, 
we'll keep on moving. There's many verses here. We, do, we can't stop on all of them. But I do want you to see one verse there. This part here. Uh, four, where is it? Ten. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So here I want to start talking about what we actually need to be focusing on. Because I think sometimes we get caught up in focusing on all that's around us, seeing what's going on, seeing what other people are doing, noticing this, noticing that. But I think we have enough to worry about in our own lives. I think we have enough going on to look inward and say, what do I have to get right with Jesus? How can I be his disciple? How is he calling me to live for him? And we will all stand before God's judgment. And so, Paul says in another book of the Bible, in 1 Corinthians, he says, so what, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so that brings us to a great characteristic that we can work towards, which is humility. When we're dealing with people, when we're dealing with Jesus, this is what God is calling us to. He's calling us to be in a place of humble approach, a place where we're looking to ourselves as not the greatest in the world. We don't have it all together. We're not perfect. We're not special, although God does love each one of us individually. We're not any better than anybody else around us. It's Jesus who we must put high. It's Jesus who God sees when he sees us, saved by his, his son who died for us. Okay. So, if you want to know how to live in a, in a humble way, in a way that's following Jesus, I would encourage you, if you're looking for something to read in the Bible and something to study and something to focus in on, don't just blitz through it once, but I encourage you to go back and read and study the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. This, this is very uh, important in our topic today. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And we would do well to read that often in our lives. So this passage is from the end, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, very relevant to our topic today. Jesus talking to people. This is his big epic delivery of saying how to follow him. He says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measures you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. One who feels grieved over his sin can help remove the speck from others. That's like a giveaway. He's saying, this is how you do it. Like, I'm going to talk, talk for a while in metaphors here about planks and specks of wood and stuff, but this, I'm actually telling you what to do right here. One who feels grieved over his own sin. We have to get ourselves to that humble place of being broken over the fact that my sin is what held him there on the cross. When we're in that humble place, then Jesus can use us to help others. And so this next concept is, in humility, we come alongside. In humility, we come alongside people. 
We don't preach at them and judge them and condemn them. In humility, we approach them. We say, hi. We say, I hope you feel welcome today. We say, what's your name? Can I get to know you? Is there anything that you're struggling with? How can I pray for you? I'm also working on some things. You start to build a relationship with people. You earn that place of trust and love, and then eventually when they're in that place and they can trust and love you, you have that place of foundation where you can start to speak, you can start to develop, you can start to share. That's not to say that some people can't, well, some people can definitely put their faith in Jesus on one thing that they hear, a message they hear, for sure. I'm just talking about how we generally approach people when they're feeling that potential of being judged. In love. So let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of our brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully, fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean in itself. So he's saying, I know the new covenant. I know we're free from all those things. But if somebody else is doing something that I'm questioning that's a disputable matter, I'm not to slam them and just heap more stumbling blocks on them and tell them why they're doing it wrong all the time, making it difficult for them. Or I'm not going to go express my freedoms that they struggle with, right? Um, we have to be careful not to just uh, put this to, like, very, this has been used in very specific things before, like very specific stumbling blocks for people, things that people are addicted to or whatever, but it can go beyond that to things that people are legalistic about, things that people do in their homes, in their families. We want to walk with people, earn that place to be able to speak to them about things. As, you, as we, as a church, invite people into our building, as you, as a believer, invite people into your life, Here's three helpful words that I've found that can help frame how you approach people. Because I think we do this backwards sometimes. The three words are B words, and the last one is behavior. The last one is behavior. So we often look at people's behavior and go, ah, they don't kind of do things the way I do. I don't really agree with how they did that. I don't really agree with their behavior. But there's two Bs that should come before that when you're interacting with people. The first one should actually be belonging. Can a person have a sense of being able to have belonging with you, with us as a church family? Even if they don't necessarily behave the way we do, could they begin to feel like they could belong with us? That we could show love to them, that we could show love to them, that we could express friendship to them. The second one is belief. If they haven't even chosen to believe what it is we have in Jesus, how can we expect people to behave the way that we want them to behave? So, Belong, believe, then we can work on behavior at that point. If we start with behavior, we're just going to come across as judgmental. That's the whole point. Now, quickly here. What if... Make sure I'm not skipping anything. What if I feel judged? What if you are here today and you are one of the ones that is feeling judged? What if you aren't a, believe, a believer? What if you don't believe what I believe? I would say to you, I hope that you feel welcome. I hope that you feel welcome here. I hope you feel welcome to talk to me. I hope you feel welcome to talk to us. If we've ever done anything as a church, or if the church as a whole has ever done anything to make you feel condemned or unwelcome, we are sorry for that. That isn't our intention. 
We wouldn't want you to feel that way, and I hope you can see that Jesus is trying to tell us not to do that, and we need to improve at that, but we're fallen, broken people. But at the same time, listen to these other words from the Apostle Paul, which he writes in 1 Corinthians 4. He says this. Now, he's coming from a place of having left his Jewish heritage and gone become a Christian. So he's got enemies of his past, and he's, he also was an enemy of the Christians at one point. So he's got enemies all around him, and he says this. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. We can't control people. We can't. We can't control the actions of others. We each still have to make a decision what we're going to do with Jesus. Jesus is inviting you. Jesus is reaching out to you to have a relationship with him. He's reaching out to you in grace and forgiveness, and you have a choice directly with Jesus, free of all the people. But I do hope you can find a church connect here at this church, join ministries, and find good connections. Once you get past the superficial level where you feel that sense of awkwardness, it is so worth it to have Christian community, to have friendships, to have groups to be a part of. We love getting people connected in life groups, alpha courses, ministries, and man, when the family of God gets together and is really together, it is so worth it. Now we don't, what we don't do though, is we don't tolerate sin. We don't just stop any form of judgment and just go on tolerating sin. See, we are made this way. We're always judging. We have this, right, the knowledge of good and evil. We can sense, we can discern when things are off. And so we do have a sense of discernment. And so therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but what is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble? It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fail. More of this. Okay, so everything that does not come from faith is sin. So sin still exists, and we want to, call, we want to be able to lead people away from sin. The way we're going to help people do that is by standing on our core. Oh, I'm out of slides. That's fine. Just go to a blank slide for me, or I want the one that says core, core beliefs. But if it's not there, just go to a blank slide for me. We stand up for the things, our core doctrines and our core beliefs. And I actually brought a copy of, I'm not going to read it all, but I brought a copy up of our statement of faith. We actually labeled what are our core beliefs that are undisputable to us, the things that are the highest level of theology that we won't be shaken on. Things like there's one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is true God, true man. Holy Spirit is a divine person. Old and New Testaments are inerrant. Humankind is created in the image and likeness of God, created by God, and it goes on and on about salvation, the church, bodily resurrection for all of us who believe in Jesus, once we die or once he returns, the second coming of Christ. All these things we're going to hold fast to. So there will always be an element. Because we are sinful people, we will often have to make judgment calls and make discerning calls. But it's about the method and the way it's given to people that can make all the difference. And so today, we're focusing in on our communion, and we're focusing in on this table. 
And this table is not a table of condemnation. This table is a table of invitation. Jesus invites us into a relationship. He invites us into a truth. He invites us into a forgiveness, and he invites us to a community with him and with all those who have also put their faith in him. So this time, I'm actually going to close our, our word off in prayer as we transition over to our communion time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has done everything for us, who has forgiven us and shown us so much grace. Help us to extend grace to each other, to fellow believers, whether weak or strong, to new believers, whether weak or strong, and to those who are curious or even not curious about who you are, Jesus. You offer invitation to us all. Help us to learn from you. In your name, amen.